Welcome back to Chop Pen Podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm a Penn Medical student and I'm this episode's producer. Before we start, I want you to close your eyes. Put yourself in a scenario. You're in the emergency department on a hectic winter day. Kind of like today, we just had our first snow. You hear over the loudspeaker a beep. Trauma alert. ETA 15 minutes. Seven-year-old flipped over bicycle handles. Abdominal injury. Unstable vital signs. You guessed it. Today's topic is abdominal trauma. We have some experts in resuscitation, imaging, and surgery who will lead us through the management of abdominal trauma, and I'd like to briefly introduce them. We have CHOP pediatric emergency medicine physician, Dr. Aaron Friedlander. We have surgeon, Dr. Mike Nance, and we have radiologist, Dr. Summer Kaplan, all of whom have great expertise in abdominal trauma. And of course, our host, Bob Belfer. Thank you, Sarah, and welcome, Mike, Aaron, and Summer, to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I want to start maybe just with a few icebreaker questions. Aaron, what professional achievement are you most proud of and why? So about two years ago, I was recruited to be a member of an architectural firm and design consultancy that is um, international in scope, and we are reimagining how to design public spaces and buildings to be more accommodating to more people with different kinds of disabilities. And it's pretty remarkable the kinds of impact we're having. And it's uh, quite a way for me to bring together a number of different things I've done in my my past um, into something meaningful today. It's truly unique, Erin. Thank you. Summer, how about you? So thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, As far as my professional achievement I'm most proud of. So I got into radiology because I'm kind of a physics geek and medical physics and imaging were really interesting to me. And as a resident, I got interested in um, shielding. So uh, there's a question in our professional guidelines as to whether or not to use gonadal shields. It was sort of left up to each institution. And I started looking into should we shield, should we not shield, and started to find that there was really no evidence for shielding the gonads and that it could actually be contraindicated and cause an increase in dose and overall risk. Um, So I did a couple of research projects on that, which then ended up being noticed by the American Association of Physicists in Medicine and other people who make policy. And now there's a national movement to change policy around gonadal shielding to do away with it. So I definitely did not start out anticipating the project was going to grow like that, but it's been something I'm proud of. (laughs) Thank you, Summer. Mike, how about you? What professional achievement are you most proud of? Um, well, I guess it's something that I was just informed of, which was um, being elected to the Academy of Master Clinicians at Penn, which is, I guess, recognition by the institution for clinical achievements. And I guess in the when all of this is over, this whole surgery gig, I think I would be most pleased if I were just remembered as a good doc. So I think being recognized for clinical achievements is uh, was very humbling. Very nice. Thank you, Mike. One last question before we get into our topic, Erin. What diagnosis or what disease is your favorite to make or to care for? Oh, my. So I think that um, I find it very rewarding to um, be with a family when they hear a hard diagnosis, such as a new tumor. And I think one of my most um, meaningful times was actually when I had an 18-month-old little girl who we had a presentation of with a large cheek mass, and she was unable to have um, full extraocular movements on the 
same side as the mass. And we were worried she had a, a new onset of a repto. And when we scanned her, we actually found that she had a little golf pencil lodged in her sinus with the tip in her inferior rectus muscle. And she was um, pre-verbal, so we're not quite sure how it got there, um, but it was a lovely outcome for a patient who could have had a really terrible di- you know, diagnosis. Great. Summer, how about you? What's your favorite diagnosis or disease to uh, image or take care of? Both of them hate me for this, but I'm going to say appendicitis because there are so many papers written on it. People just can't stop writing about it, and you should know everything by now, but it's always surprising. I just had an eight-month-old inpatient with a ruptured appy a few days ago, and who knew? Great. Mike? Uh, well, it's not appendicitis. <laughs> Uh, we see that and we see that and we see that. I would say it's, it's probably a tracheoesophageal fistula. Um, it's, it's just sort of a quintessential pediatric surgical diagnosis. It's a very challenging operation. Um, it's something that, that really needs to be done by pediatric surgeons. So it's clearly something that kind of defines pediatric surgery. So those are, uh, those are always uh, fun and challenging and uh, usually very rewarding. Thank you, Mike. Now uh, let's get into our main topic. As Sarah mentioned, we'll be talking about blunt abdominal trauma. And if you look at all pediatric abdominal trauma injuries, blunt injuries account for 90% of them, the rest usually penetrating. Blunt abdominal trauma, third most common cause of pediatric deaths from trauma, head injuries being first, thoracic injuries being second. But it's the most common unrecognized fatal injury. Mike, why is that? Uh, it's a bit of a black box. So the head injury is uh, usually pretty easy to detect because they have a loss of consciousness or an altered consciousness. The chest, usually if they're in trouble, you can tell because they'll show you something. But the belly, it's easy to hide injury uh, for a while until they get in trouble. And Aaron, why is that unique in the pediatric patient as opposed to the adult patient? What specifically anatomically or physiologically is different from the pediatric patient than our adult counterparts? I think first, the patients that we evaluate um, with significant trauma have a hard time talking to us. They're overwhelmed and scared and sometimes pre-verbal, and um, that impacts more of our assessments than it probably does in um, the adult worlds where they're often able to be a little bit more articulate and discriminating about where their pain might be. But we also know little kids have more compliant chest walls and they're Organs are more largely exposed because their chest walls don't cover their organs quite as well. We know their abdominal muscles are less well-developed and they're more vulnerable to uh, extreme forces in terms of the way their organs are exposed to the traumatic events they occur. And I think all these are reasons why it's most important to recognize the abdominal injury so that we can image and then intervene. But before we recognize, let's go back to, let me put Mike and Aaron, you're both in the trauma resuscitation bay. Okay, you get a call from EMS. And in most cases, although not all cases, you do get some type of mechanism of injury. In other words, age of the child and what the mechanism was. So I want you now to sort of use, I guess, what I would call stream of consciousness. What common injuries are going through your brain, okay, before the patient arrives in the trauma room, okay, based solely on the mechanism? Okay, we'll talk more about the exam, the imaging, and the management, but again, just on mechanism. And let's start uh, with probably one of the most common ones, Aaron, motor vehicle accidents, okay? Uh, What 
uh, things do you need to know? Restraint versus non-restraint. But what abdominal injuries, okay, specifically would be running through your mind when you hear about an MVC, motor vehicle collision? So I assume you're meaning a passenger in a motor vehicle accident rather than a pedestrian hit. Sure. So, you know, my first question is usually whether they're restrained and whether they're properly restrained, because that's going to um, challenge me to think more broadly about other injuries if they are not restrained. And if they are restrained, but not necessarily appropriately, I'm going to be worried about hollow viscous injuries from, uh, you know, a seatbelt. Um, which is probably one of the more common things that we would see uh, in this population. I think now more and more with cell phones, people are taking pictures of the car, pictures of the accident, side impact, frontal impact, damage to the car. Mike, comments regarding uh, those issues? No, I, I think it's, I think restraint is probably, um, you know, the biggest issue. And it's, if they're restrained and restrained appropriately, it's remarkable how well those devices protect the patients, uh, the kids. If if they're unrestrained, it just opens up the whole Pandora's box of, of head injury, chest injury, belly injury, almost anything. So if they're in something, then they're, they're probably less likely to have bad heads. If they're in something, but inappropriately, I agree uh, with Aaron that that it opens up a lot of risk for some of the abdominal injuries. Still probably better than unrestrained, far better than unrestrained, but it does increase the, the risk of injury to, to things like hollow organ injuries. Right. And Aaron and Mike, you both alluded to restrain, whether proper or not, seatbelt injuries. Okay. So there is a syndrome associated with it. So again, what specifically what abdominal injuries or what is the seatbelt syndrome complex uh, that you'd be thinking about? Uh, not only based on the mechanism of injury, but also we'll talk more about physical exam findings. So Erin? So the thing we worry about most with the seatbelt um, sign when you see the bruising across the lower abdomen, meaning the seatbelt has risen above the pelvic bones and it has kind of caused this pivot point where the patients can injure their um, intestine. We worry about hollow viscous injury, which can also be associated then with some lumbar fractures, which are less consequential, I think, but it's just one of those things you need to be looking for. But hollow viscous injury is it's a bit hard for us, I think, in the trauma bay. Um, sometimes it's easier for us to identify them when there are transports that come in and some time has passed because usually those are, at least in the cases I've had, they evolve over time and they're not necessarily easy to identify if we get those kids to us quickly. And we'll, great, Aaron, we'll talk about more about diagnosing that and managing that shortly. So let's switch, not just a motor vehicle accident where the child is in the car, restrained or unrestrained. How about a pedestrian struck? Most textbooks talk about this Waddell triad. And again, that might be more with teenagers or, or larger children. But again, what abdominal injuries, what common injuries would you be thinking about when you hear EMS say they're bringing in a child who was struck by a car? Mike? Um, I think you started to allude to the, one of the more important things, which is how big the child is. So it's going to determine where they are hit on their body. So if it's an adolescent, then their front bumper will probably clip them uh, in their lower extremities, throw them under the hood so they may get a head injury slamming down against the hood. If it's a smaller child, then the bumper may catch them in the abdomen. And so that can be much more uh, significant from an abdominal injury perspective. And then usually they'll also sort of slam their head against the front of the car or windshield as well. So it, it would depend on the size of the child and, and how they were hit. Great. Let's switch to another mechanism, uh, not uncommon mechanism that we see at CHOP and other pediatric trauma centers, falls, whether they're falls from windows, from balconies, 
from a child climbing a tree. Tell us a little bit about, again, the injuries you're thinking about with falls. And is, a, is it a five foot fall, a 10 foot fall? Again, a lot of times we don't know the exact height that they fell, but is there some kind of marker where you're a little bit more worried based on the height of the fall, Erin? So we've seen some pretty profound intra-abdominal injuries from falls from significant heights onto hard surfaces. And um, they tend, at least in those cases, when they're significant falls to have fractures of their liver, spleen, kidney, adrenal gland sometimes, and we find multiple injuries in those kids. I think that the, the smaller falls from our trees in our backyard tend to be isolated oftentimes to one organ or another rather than the multiple organs, but I generally those kids land on their back and I would have, I actually don't know, maybe Mike knows better whether liver, spleen, or kidney is more common in those, but that's what we're tending to look for and we usually find. And I think they happen to be lower grade injuries than those from higher impacts. Yeah, I would, I would say it's uh, most of the kind of the things around the house with a fall are a little bit lower likelihood to have abdominal trauma and more orthopedic back, maybe some head, unless they fall on some specific surface and something sticking out and so that they get a lot of energy concentrated into a small area. So if they fall onto the corner of a desk, perhaps, then then they may get it. As you get higher and higher, second floor, third floor, things like that, where you really have some elevation, then you can get, you, you can start to get things avulsing off of vascular pedicles and things. And those can be pretty significant, but that's pretty, those are going to be pretty high falls. So I would say it's usually from something that they fell onto, like something protruding rather than just simply the fall. And how about uh, Mike and Aaron, falls down steps. Okay, now obviously we don't see a lot of children come in with falls down steps, but a lot of times parents will give that history in young children who come in injured and they give the mechanism, oh, they fell down eight or 10 steps. Uh, What type of injuries are you thinking of there? And obviously I'm sort of alluding to the possibility of non-accidental trauma in these cases. And that history of falling down a step is not really true. Erin, your experience with falls down steps? So true falls down steps tend to be a series of, you know, 12 little tiny bumps rather than a a large mass of an adult who falls from the top all the way down to the bottom. Adults get injured and kids tend not to. So we've really changed how we care for kids who come in after sort of an honest fall down steps. I think our hardest patients emotionally and probably just thinking through what to do for them in the trauma bay are those that come in with non-accidental injuries. We've moved forward in our thinking to be aware that there are lots of hidden injuries that we might not be able to appreciate immediately at the bedside, but that can be quite consequential. And we're oftentimes devoting much of our attention to their altered mental status and clear head injury. During the pandemic, bicycle sales have increased. More and more children are riding bicycles. E-bikes are out there, uh, and you could obtain speeds of up to 20 to 25 miles an hour without even pedaling. So again, pre-hospital calls, child riding a bike, injured. Mike, what bike injuries, specifically abdominal injuries, uh, would you be thinking about before the patient arrives? So that is... um a scenario where we worry about uh, hitting the end of the handlebar. That's one of the common things. I mean, they, they can get thrown over the handlebars uh, and then they're going to you know, hit their head or something. But when they strike the handlebar, which is a pretty common mechanism, it's usually an abrupt turn. If they 
for instance, run into the, the curb and the handlebars turn abruptly and they fly over and hit the abdomen on the way. It's all the energy of the hit directed at a very small area, the end of the handlebar. And so that can do some pretty significant damage. And so then you'll, you may see a rather dramatic liver or spleen injury or the ones that we commonly see are pancreatic injuries. And so they strike the middle of the abdomen with the end of the handlebar and, and fracture their uh, pancreas. All right, we're getting closer. The patient is going to be in the trauma resuscitation room soon. And actually, they are arriving. And your first glance at the patient, okay, regardless of the mechanism, any of the mechanisms we just talked about, the patient looks like they're overweight, okay? So, Aaron, Mike, I would think the, the extra weight in the abdomen, that may be protective for abdominal injuries. Thoughts on that or any other issues uh, regarding the overweight or obese trauma patient? Aaron? Well, I think actually what... It, so yes, they can be much more challenging to evaluate for some reasons, and perhaps some of that extra layering is is protective. I think, again, depending on the forces and the mechanisms, they're still quite at high risk. And I think they might be at higher risk in terms of how we evaluate because our physical exam might be harder. They may be able to hide more blood in their belly before we recognize it. And some of our bedside tools to help us assess whether there's free fluid probably are more challenging to interpret. Getting x-rays is harder. So um, I think it puts us in a more uncomfortable position in terms of feeling good about exactly what might be happening in, in the abdominal compartment. We rely on our vital signs. And I, I do think true peritonitis and true guarding are things that we should still be able to rely on if um, we're confident in our physical exams. But I would have to defer to Mike about whether that extra layer of subcutaneous tissue is protective in dramatic ways or just smaller ways? <laughs> I, I think it probably does, I mean, literally act as some padding, but it also it does make things a little bit harder to evaluate at times, I think. It, the other thing that it may do is, is make it more difficult for safety devices to work properly. So you're kind of cheating with a seatbelt maybe because it's harder to get on or other things that you might be using as a, as a safety mechanism may be used inappropriately. And so that may increase your risk from injury because it's not being used appropriately. Great points, both of you. So now the patient has arrived in the trauma bay. You, Mike, as the trauma surgeon, Aaron, as the ER physician are both there. Primary survey, obviously looking for life-threatening conditions and then intervening on any of those life-threatening conditions that you find. And then the secondary survey, head to toe look. And again, we're gonna focus on identifying abdominal injuries. So what in your initial exam, both vital signs, abdominal exam, other parts of your secondary survey, clue you into an abdominal injury, which of course, we're going to bring Summer in shortly, which is going to lead us to image these patients. So again, what on vital signs, abdominal exam, even chest exam, are going to clue you in to a potential abdominal injury? Erin, you're usually at the bedside performing some of these surveys. So the first things I tend to pay attention to after sort of the obvious, are they able to sort of communicate with us and help us understand what hurts is their vital signs. Their heart rate and blood pressure are the things that I will pay most attention to in terms of looking for signs of blood loss that might be hidden, um, which gets complicated in scared patients who are also in pain, right? Because your heart rate can rise for those reasons. 
They shouldn't be hypotensive if their blood pressure is being recorded appropriately. So that's a late sign and we've already lost time if they are hypertensive. If the tachycardia is related to something physiologic and not just the emotion, um, that's going to uh, make me more invested in getting them to either a scanner or a surgeon more quickly. And I know that I'm supposed to pay attention to the, I'm, I'm assuming the ABCs are all stable at that point. And I tend to try to roll quickly. And then um, as we're drawing blood, I usually ask for a quick hemoglobin to see, you know, if I can get a little bit of support for my concern for their potential for having bleeding. And then, you know, once we're allowed to sort of move forward and do our secondary exam, just an inspection of the belly and looking for signs of external injury helps to, again, either confirm that there's a higher likelihood of injury or uh, it doesn't mean that they don't have one if there isn't isn't a a bruise or sort of some kind of marking that indicates a seatbelt or a impaction from something external. But those would be the, the first things I'm looking for. Mike, from a surgical perspective, anything else to add to that thorough evaluation that Aaron just outlined? I agree. I mean, your your first thing is going to be vital signs. So that's going to be kind of the hard, one of the hard stops or, or, you know, critical things. And then the specifics on the abdominal exam. So looking for clues that there's something on the inside going on and abrasions or bruises or abdominal distension. And then the ability to really get an exam is also impacted by the patient's level of consciousness. So whether that's because they have a head injury or their vital signs are not good enough to perfuse their head will impact your ability to, to get an exam, as will their age. So they can whether they can tell you their abdomen hurts or not. And then it also may be where an obese patient may be a little bit harder to, to know if they're distended. So they're, they have a protuberant abdomen. Is it because they're obese or is it because they have blood collecting in their abdomen? So as both of you are performing the primary and secondary survey, a nurse is usually putting an IV in, giving some fluids and drawing what we would call trauma labs. I look at them two ways. Obviously in an unstable patient, you quickly want to get a type and cross and a baseline hemoglobin. But in the majority of patients who are relatively stable, there are certain labs that we obtain. And I guess the goal would be to corroborate your physical exam findings, or if your physical exam really doesn't show anything, are there any lab studies which could help lead you to potentially imaging this child. So again, what lab studies are routine that we get in the CHOP trauma bay, and how do they help you determine if we need the next step, imaging? Erin? So certainly a CBC and a type in screen are the, the things I would ask for if I am only allowed to order two things. I think beyond that, some of the more discriminating tests that we send might be liver function tests. And there's some evidence to show that an AST of greater than 200 or an ALT of greater than 125, or if you're in a different circumstance, but looking at concern for non-accidental trauma patients with a cold abdominal injury, a, a threshold of 80, those are suggestions that there could be some kind of intra-abdominal solid organ injury that we should investigate further. Sometimes those take some time to come back and we already have made decisions. So um, in real time, they're most helpful for patients who are, are enormously stable and we have the ability to do serial exams with them as well. But if somebody is is waiting for a very objective method, those would be the things I think. I have to admit, I'm a little bit more confused about amylase and lipase. Not quite sure I ever understand the utility of amylase. Lipase I know can be 
useful in trending for pancreatic injuries. Um, and so we tend to send that and sometimes having a baseline if we're going to be doing serial exams for those patients is useful. But I, I find that we make more decisions based on transaminases than uh, pancreatic enzymes. Mike, role of the labs and maybe also add urinalysis. We frequently, in a stable patient, will obtain urine. So comment on the labs that Aaron just mentioned and uh, the role of the urinalysis. And again, the need for potential imaging going forward. So we've we've gone back and forth over the years, over the decades, about what labs we need. And, and we've tried to be minimalists in recent years. And I think that's a good thing. The labs are not free. You sometimes go down a rabbit hole based on some labs that you wish you hadn't just because somebody ordered them. So obviously it's dictated. I would say that to the extent possible, a custom job is great. So if you're, if you're tailoring it to the patient, if you don't have that luxury, then, you know, the things that are critical, uh, I would agree, are going to be getting some blood to the blood bank for type and cross uh, and getting a hemoglobin, yeah, even though it could be spurious, depending on how brisk the bleeding is and when you're getting it. The other labs, I would also agree that they can be misleading or just take too long to get back. The LFTs, there are a couple algorithms that, that use labs to help determine whether to get imaging. And most of the time, you need to make the decision about getting imaging sooner than you're getting your amylase and lipase back or sooner than you're getting your LFTs back. And so in retrospect, we should have gotten the CT because it didn't meet criteria or vice versa. So they've been recommended for some of the algorithms, but I, I don't know how useful they are in that setting. I think that's an excellent point, Mike, and a, a good transition now to imaging. So there's certain imaging that can go on at the bedside. Let's talk about the focused assessment with sonography in trauma, otherwise known as the FAST exam. I think uh, in adult trauma, where there's more unstable patients, this exam has replaced diagnostic peritoneal lavage. The, the FAST exam, usually done at the bedside, do we routinely do it at CHOP? Is it a yes or no answer? And is it helpful in deciding, A, we need further imaging, or we don't need to go to the CAT scan. Erin? I spend a lot of time thinking about the FAST exam because for me personally, I guess having grown up before it was something that we used all the time is not how I make decisions. I find it often delays us getting to where we're ultimately going. And that with a positive or a negative FAST exam, we have other things that will suggest whether the patient needs advanced cross-sectional imaging with CAT scan. And sometimes the FAST exam delays us getting to where we really need to be going. I do recognize its value as a teaching tool and that it sometimes can offer some insight. It's not sensitive for the kinds of things that we would like it to be for. So I actually think that it has some more utility in penetrating trauma. And I, I still struggle to find its value in the trauma bay but I, I would love to learn more and I'm, I'm certainly open to how to use it so that it, it doesn't delay where we need to go. But I think at this point in time, it doesn't sort of advance what we need to know about a patient in real time. Mike, your thoughts, and again, if you're a proponent, do you teach your trainees how to perform the FAST exam? No, a simple answer to that. So we do have trainees that come from the adult world uh, and rotate with us and they're very comfortable with it. So in the, in the adult trauma world, I mean, it's almost an extension of the stethoscope. So it's a part of their regular exam for better or for worse. We, we've had a harder time incorporating that into the 
management algorithms in the pediatric population, in part because it does, to some extent, give a yes-no answer about it's fluid or no fluid is what most of the exam is giving you. Not necessarily, this is a grade three liver laceration. It's saying, I see fluid or I don't see fluid around the liver. And so that doesn't necessarily change how we would manage somebody. If we have a high index of suspicion, we're getting a CT scan or some other imaging. Anyway, so it's it doesn't usually change our decision-making about further imaging. There are a couple scenarios where I think FAST can be very helpful. One is penetrating trauma and looking at the box, looking at the pericardial windows to see if there's fluid around the heart. And so in a patient that's unstable with with an injury that may involve the heart, that can be critical. The other is an unstable patient and there may be blood in the abdomen. Um, So a bad head and maybe a a hypotension from an abdominal injury and knowing that there's a belly full of free fluid could be very uh, useful in terms of how you triage that patient. So that was one of my questions for you, Mike, later on. If that fast exam and the unstable patient does not show blood in the belly, are you still confident that you don't need to look in there with a little laparoscope or does that 30% chance of missing bleeding or injuries that might not have yet bled enough to be seen? Is that? So I think if it's, if it's an unstable patient and you're trying to figure out whether that's the source, I, I think your fast is probably going to give you that answer. It would be, it's going to be pretty sensitive for picking up significant bleeding. It's going to miss the subtleties. It's going to miss the grade one liver lack, which is probably inconsequential in the big picture anyway. And it's definitely inconsequential in this unstable patient. So that's not going to be your source. So I think if if you're trying to sort out whether this is a an unstable patient from an intra-abdominal injury, bleeding in particular, it's probably going to tell you it's pretty good. Okay, let's uh, move on to the image that is done in, according to the literature, about 50% of pediatric blunt abdominal trauma victims, and that's the CAT scan. Okay, so either based on the mechanism of the injury, the physical exam findings, or the labs, or a combination, and there's criteria, as Mike alluded to, when not to and when to get a CT. Uh, let's talk about the abdominal CT. Summer, maybe is there some some easy softball questions first. Contrast. We use IV contrast, but not oral contrast. And again, take a moment to talk about radiation, which I've heard you speak about at many CHOP conferences. But again, talk about what the role of the CAT scan is and what uh, how you interpret them in the pediatric abdominal trauma victim. So uh, CAT scans are extremely helpful in trauma and many other settings, and they provide a lot of information quickly, which is, you know, why they're so helpful. They require IV contrast. We're looking for injury. So IV contrast is really the only way to evaluate extravasation. Um, things like lacerations, avulsions, we really can't assess um, well without IV contrast. Oral contrast is really not indicated. Um, you know, it it takes a while for the oral contrast to get through the bowel. So if you're concerned for a, a injury to the small bowel or the colon, um, oral contrast um, is, is going to take a lot of time to get there. So we don't typically wait on that. In some places in the adult settings, especially, you might see rectal contrast used if there's concern for lower um, bowel injury. But again, in pediatrics, we don't typically use that. And um, even in adults, it's not shown to really increase the sensitivity of the CT for bowel injury. As far as radiation, 
I can talk about um, that as well. Uh, so, you know, CT, like everything we do in medicine, is a risk-benefit analysis. How much does it benefit the patient versus what are the risks? And the benefit to the patient in the trauma setting just hugely outweighs any risks from radiation. I mean, the patient has already been exposed to a really devastating trauma event. Um, and so we need to address that and have all the information we need at our disposal. The CT doses in kids and adults have decreased tremendously over the years as we become more aware of the risk of radiation. Both scanner manufacturers and individual radiology departments have tailored our techniques and, and even the, the hardware, the scanners, to be able to get better images with lower radiation. So radiation doses now for CT are probably um, less than half of what they were, say, 20 years ago, before we, we started on the campaign to lower dose. Thank you, Summer. And there's a question, Mike and Aaron, for you. Uh, you have a patient in the trauma bay. Fluids have gone in. Okay. Vital signs are a little bit sort of soft. You're concerned about an abdominal injury, either based on the exam or the laboratory studies. How important is it to get that CAT scan in a patient who's not unstable, Mike or Aaron, but sort of is, you know, very concerning? They may end up being admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. Is every one of those patients going to go to CAT scan before they get into the intensive care unit, Aaron, Mike? I would say um, imaging is everything <laughs> for those. And so that's going to help determine what you do, where they go. So, you know, a normal progression is trauma bay. So, so let me step back a second. What I would educate our trauma chiefs when they're standing, you know, at the foot of the bed and trying to put the big picture together is where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And so they need to be thinking about that all the time. The good thing is that most of the time that decision isn't extraordinarily time critical. The patients are typically stable. And so you've got some time to think about that, but not always. And so you need to be thinking about where the next step is and whether it's usually the decisions are CT scan, OR, ICU, and then floor if it's a stable patient. And, and so one of the more common places to go from the trauma bay is going to be CT scan. And CT scan, uh, you know, is... We've got on our high horse and preached for years about how uh, dangerous it is to radiate the kids. And I think we've made unbelievable progress because now all institutions are using, you know, weight-based protocols and things like that. And so it's much safer. It's not the same thing we were worried about, you know, a decade or two ago. So, so that's great. The CT scan is probably the single best imaging that's available. It's everything. You can see everything. It gives you all the information. So I love the CT scan. So as much as I've preached against it over the years, I love it. And I, I would usually say to people that if they think they need a CT scan, then you probably should be getting a CT scan. And, you know, it's often called gentle radiation, but I would, I usually refer to it as thoughtful radiation. So I think if in your mind you've thought about what you need, what answers, what questions you need answered, and you think that a CT is necessary to answer that question, then you should get it. If you're getting it because you're getting something else, that's a bad reason to get it. So, well, we're doing the head and we need to do the belly. So let's scan the spine and chest also because they're in between. That's a bad decision tree. So I would, I would um, always argue for thoughtful radiation. Great. Thank you, Mike. And there's one other imaging modality in the radiology literature, and that's contrast-enhanced ultrasound. Uh, Summer, what is it? What roles and indications do you feel is necessary? What's the contrast agent that's being used? So the contrast agent in ultrasound is microbubbles. It's an inert gas with a, usually a lipid um, film that creates these microbubbles. And so the microbubbles reflect the ultrasound beam and show up as an echogenic material. 
One of the advantages of contrast enhanced ultrasound is you're able to do a real-time evaluation and see blood flow over time. Um, so that gives it a little bit of a different set of information than you get from CT, which is a one-time shot through the belly or uh, the anatomy. But there are some real downsides to contrast enhanced ultrasound or, ultras or ultrasound in general in trauma evaluation. And the primary thing is that you just don't see everything. You are not able to evaluate fractures well. Valve gas will obscure deeper injuries. Um, so those, those are some of the diagnostic things to think about. The time involved in doing a complete survey of the abdomen for trauma is significant with ultrasound, as well as the fact that it requires you to press on the belly where the kid hurts. And so it's not great for the patient experience either. The literature on contrasting with ultrasound and trauma is still pretty new. And there are some places where it may have a role more in terms of evaluating uh, low-grade injuries where there may be some medical legal reasons to look, but not a great benefit to doing CT or in follow-up where you've assessed initially with CT and you need to um, be able to follow up, but don't need the radiation. Perfect. Thank you, Summer. Let's transition now to uh, management. Fluid bolus is in. Let's talk about the role Mike and Aaron in blood transfusions. Okay. So what, after that initial 20 per kilo fluid is in, obviously reassess fluid, reassess vital signs, reassess examination. What are your indications for transfusion therapy uh, in the child who you're suspecting has a blunt abdominal injury? Erin, you want to take that first? I may be a little bit of an outlier here with some of this, but if I have a patient who's had a catastrophic sort of impact to their belly, who comes in distended and tachycardic and pale, I will start with blood right away rather than diluting what I think is already anemia and hemorrhage in the belly um, and using crystalloid. So I, I would begin with blood in those circumstances and have done that before. If it's a patient that is stable enough and I'm comfortable getting more information and I've given some normal saline and if I have uh, any indication that there's blood loss based on a hemoglobin that's low on a blood gas in the trauma bay, although they might not have equilibrated and it might not be yet their, their sort of settled out hemoglobin, um, I would start blood again before giving 40 per kilo of crystalloid. So I think a lot of it for me depends on mechanism and their vital signs and what other injuries they might be having and whether the abdominal trauma they've suffered may also have sort of consequences to retroperitoneal structures that I might not be able to assess as well clinically, but might be sort of contributing to what's going on. And um, we might need to get some more time before that can be sorted out and whether there's any injury to the pelvic structures and vessels as well. So it's, it's a complicated question, I think, and straightforward in that if a kid is in extremis, I give the blood supply that's in the bay before giving normal saline. Mike, your approach to uh, papyrid blood cells in the management resuscitation of the trauma patient? Um, I think it would be the, the, the same. If a patient is already hypotensive, truly hypotensive in the trauma bay, then they're probably pretty far out on the, on the curve. And blood is, you know, blood is your friend in that scenario. I think our threshold to transfuse has gotten, you know, lower and lower over the years because we're more and more comfortable using it, I think. And, you know, the realization that if you get behind the eight ball, because you've given a bunch of crystalloid uh, and diluted them down and started them on the bleeding cascade, then, you know, that's a much worse place to be than an occasional patient that, you know, may not have needed it. So I think if you're, if you're starting with a patient that looks pretty sick and has uh, a 
pretty good likelihood of having ongoing bleeding, they've already potentially gotten crystalloid in the field and on the way in, then you're probably going to go to blood early. Okay, great. And uh, Mike, talk about, you know, Summer talked about the CAT scan findings, basically the grading of the injuries to the spleen, liver, kidney. Uh, Do you manage the patient based on the grade of the injury or more their hemodynamic status uh, in the resuscitation bay? Mike? Um, So we we manage physiology, not anatomy. So it doesn't really matter what it looks like, how bad it looks like on the CT scan necessarily. It's how they respond to that. So somebody can have a grade five splenic injury, but if they're hemodynamically stable, I would not operate on them. Same thing for, for other organs. And so generally the management should be guided by physiology rather than uh, anatomy. And Mike, the majority of patients with these types of uh, blunt abdominal injuries to the organs are going to be managed non-operatively. Uh, how long do you need to watch them? Let's say whether in the ER, in the ICU, before you're convinced that you know, non-operative management will be fine for this patient, as opposed to hours or days later, they may need an operation for ongoing bleeding. So the the vast majority are, um, you can manage non-operatively. It should be well over 90% of of solid organ injuries can be managed non-operatively. It's going to vary by grade. You know, grade one and grade two injuries are sort of a yawners and unlikely to cause much grief in the long run. You know, grade three, grade four, grade five all have potential for, you know, bleeding and more consequential injury. But again, we would still manage them non-operatively until I think their conditions prove that they can't be managed non-operatively. And where they go and how you manage them is going to depend on their grade for the most part. And so most of the algorithms out there, management is based on the grade of injury. So whether that includes some time in the ICU or not, whether it includes some time immobilized or not, um, the frequency of lab checks are usually based on grade of injury. And then it also impacts the recommendations for post-discharge, you know, time out of sports and things like that. And so, you know, rather than getting into the nuances, I think of some of the algorithms, because it, it does vary a little bit based on your on the centers, I would say that's where grading is is so important because it helps us determine how we're going to do their initial inpatient management and then some of the recommendations for when they can return to contact sports. You talked about non-operative management, Mike, and obviously operative management in the rare number of cases. Any role for angioembolization? Uh, I know it's done a little bit more in the adult trauma world than in the pediatric trauma world. You were a recent author on an article from the Journal of Pediatrics uh, Surgery. What role does uh, IR embolization play in the role of blunt abdominal trauma injuries? Um, so it is on the algorithm for uh, patients with evidence of ongoing bleeding, I would say. And so if you have a patient that has a, usually it's going to be a higher grade injury, evidence of ongoing bleeding, either by CT or by hemoglobin or both, then one of the options would be angioembolization. And that can, you know, that's whether it's liver or, or spleen. So they, they have to be stable enough to go to a, you know, a radiology suite. An unstable patient should not be in getting a CT scan, should not be in the radiology suite. I mean, that's just not the ideal place for them. So this is a patient that's metastable perhaps, but has evidence of ongoing blood loss. And so radiology should be on that algorithm. And the, you know, because so few fail, ultimately, that's why IR is not used all that commonly, a few times a year, perhaps at CHOP even, which is a pretty high volume center. 
And I would say the indications, some, some of the adult centers have used algorithms that do NGO much more frequently or do it based on an algorithm rather than on the individual patient and their characteristics and being driven by the patient's physiology. They do it based on, in some cases, based on grade. And so they're going to image the higher grade ones. So, and we would not do that. Just want to close on talking about the management of some specific injuries. So let's sort of focus on probably the organ that's injured the most, the spleen. And Mike, in your surgical literature, a lot of controversy. About the 1970s, uh, some of your colleagues realized the spleen has an immune role in the body, and there's been evolution in the management. Dr. Sigmund Ein from Toronto, famous quote, preservation of the spleen after blunt trauma should not be in formalin but instead in the peritoneal cavity. So again, talk about, uh, I guess, your mentors and obviously your management now of going to the operating room for splenic injuries. Um, so I think it's, in the pediatric world, you worry much more about the spleen. So there is immunologic function. I think there's pretty good evidence for that. You know, one of the things in the decades past was the risk for overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis. And that, I'm not sure I've seen that. You know, it's probably because overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis usually happened, it was, was before we had such a wide array of antibiotics to treat sepsis. So, you know, it may not be that common a thing, but you're definitely at greater risk for Neisseria, meningitis, the strep, pneumos, those kind of things, uh, which is why that kids without a spleen will get uh, immunized. So we worry a little bit about it. Um, the adult world, they're much less uh, worried about it because it probably has less immunologic consequences. Although there are some studies about sort of progenitor cells present in the spleen, which may be important in healing from things like MIs and stuff. So, you know, maybe there is some hidden benefit uh, to the spleen. So we would, we would advocate that if you can save a spleen, you should try and save a spleen. Another uh, injury that we sort of alluded to uh, are GI injuries, so hollow viscous injuries. Let me go back to Summer. Do we see these on CAT scan, Summer? Are they readily uh, identifiable uh, compared to spleen or liver injuries? Great question. They are definitely not as easy to identify as solid organ injuries. And how easy they are to identify sort of depends on the extent of the injury. So a large laceration and perforation with significant free air will be easy to see. It's more the, the smaller injuries, um, you know, the intraluminal pressure in the bowel is not like the intraluminal or the, the thoracic pressure of air. So there's not as much pressure forcing air out of the bowel. More often what we'll see is small amounts of gas in the mesentery or up in the hepatis in the right upper quadrant. And so those are some of the things we look for for subtle signs of bowel injury. Sometimes seeing free fluid in the pelvis without any other sign of solid organ injury can be indicative of a bowel injury. Um, but there is evidence that if it's simple fluid, that that does not correspond to a bowel injury. So it would have to be complex blood, blood type fluid in the pelvis that might make us think about a bowel injury. So Mike, based on those subtle CAT scan findings or relatively normal CAT scan findings, but with a high suspicion of a GI injury, obviously you're gonna admit these patients to the hospital monitor them, observe them, serial exams. How do you end up identifying this type of injury? And then what do you do about it? Um, so I'll step, I'll step back a little bit from that. I, I would say figuring out the bowel injury is the Achilles heel for the CT scan. It's good, but not perfect. 
I would encourage anybody that's involved with the care of the patients when possible to, to actually go find the, the radiologist themselves, the human, and look at the imaging with them. Because you've seen the patient, you know what you're worried about, where you're worried about it. And if it's something on the scan that fits with what you're worried about, then that increases the likelihood of that being true. If it's something completely uh, unrelated, either in you know location or concerns, then while what they're seeing may not be normal on the CT, it may not be relevant or at least relevant to that, to that patient. So I think um, particularly in things that are subtle and you're uncertain about, I think if you can go sit down with a radiologist and look at the scan together, it makes a, a world of difference. Um, and so I would always encourage that. In, in t- if we have a high enough threshold or, or suspicion, then, um, I mean, if there's a big, a, a ton of free air and clearly there's a bowel injury, then you're going to take them to the OR to explore them. If it's more subtle uh, and you're uncertain, then they may be a good candidate for laparoscopy. Um, we do the fair amount of that in the pediatric world, but they have to be, laparoscopy is for a stable patient and a stable patient only. You don't take them to the OR if they're unstable, um, ongoing blood loss, things like that. It's, that's just not probably appropriate, but we have a lot of scenarios where um, there's some abdominal tenderness, some subtle or um, uncertain CT findings, uh, and you you just need to to rule out a bowel injury. And so um, laparoscopy can actually be pretty helpful there. I think I have a very pertinent question for the three of you. We talked mainly about the diagnoses and management at a pediatric trauma center such as CHOP, but many of these patients with injuries are going to show up in the community and are going to be taken care of by physicians who are not aware or at a setting such as the one that we talked about at CHOP or a pediatric trauma center. What recommendations would you have? Aaron, we'll start with you for the referring doctor as far as once they are concerned about a blunt abdominal injury, labs, imaging, transfer, what are some of the major recommendations that you would give? So my biggest ask is access and making sure you have secure access. And if it's a patient who has risk for being unstable, having more than one site of access, Um, If it's a patient who is stable and you're not quite clear on um, what to image and how to image, getting that patient to us um, early is helpful. If you've already imaged and you have copies of those uh, CAT scans or plain films, please send them with the patient or in advance if you can do that electronically so we can be prepared. That's very helpful. Um, Active resuscitation is really helpful early on for anybody who is potentially unstable. And if it's a patient that is um, a distance away and you need help, and there is a closer center that might have surgeons available to help stabilize the patient, that's likely in the patient's best interest. And then we can help retrieve the patient um, once they've been stabilized. Those are great. Summer recommendations for the ER doctor regarding use of radiology to manage these patients. I think it's the most important thing is that the outpatient centers are doing the imaging they feel like they need to do to keep the patient safe. If they're not trained in pediatric trauma and they feel they need to CT, they may use CT more often than and more extensively than pediatric trauma specialists, but they need to do it to keep the patient safe. And when they're transferring a patient, they need to consider the imaging as a key part of the transfer process. And in my ideal world, the transfer of images would happen radiology to radiology and not have to be handled by the transport team or the ED. It should be directly 
radiology to radiology department. Um, I think these days, all of us who are radiologists have to be a little bit of an informaticist because you still need to understand what resources you have for getting outside imaging, whether it's on disk, whether it's in, through the cloud, what are the different systems for, for, for um, acquiring images electronically. We have to understand that. Mike, you have a national presence uh, in the Pediatric Trauma Society. What are your personal and also your society's recommendations for the referring hospital uh, in managing a patient uh, with blunt abdominal trauma? So I, I think it's difficult because the resources are going to vary um, between all the different centers. I mean, it, sometimes it's a decision for an adult trauma center to send them to a pediatric trauma center. And so that's a that's a, a pretty well-resourced center wanting to go to sort of the next level. And that's quite different than, you know, maybe a level four center or not even a level four trauma center um, that has very limited resources, may not have a surgeon, may not have an interventional radiologist, um, may have to call in a tech to do any kind of uh, higher end imaging. And so that's going to be a different um, equation. So I think the decision has to be made locally um, about what their resources are and how far they can take it. There's always the conundrum of, well, if I don't do the CT scan, I won't know that they have an injury to transfer of them for. But if I get the CT scan and they've and uh, they've got a bad injury, then I've waited, you know, longer or I've exposed them to radiation. So it's obviously quite complicated. I think if the decision is made to do a CT scan, they need to do the CT scan right. So you know, doing it with contrast is essential. Um, because that's going to, uh, a non-contrast, non-IV contrast CT scan really is going to potentially miss a lot. And then we're forced on our end to consider redoing it. And that's, you know, not something we want to do. So if you're going to do it, then do it right. If you do it, please send it. And then, um, it, you know, know what your resources are locally and um, and know that we're there to help. Thank you, Mike. And thank you to all of you, Aaron Summer and Mike, for your expertise uh, in both identifying and managing uh, the patient with blunt abdominal trauma. I want to give you each a chance for some final thoughts. In other words, what are the take-home points to our listeners regarding blunt abdominal trauma? So Aaron, from the ER perspective, what final thoughts would you have to our listeners of the podcast? I would um, just encourage you to be very thoughtful about the mechanism and thinking through what the potential um, forces experienced you know, could translate into clinically. Um, always, always pay attention to the vital signs. Those are um, important to have a constant record of. Um, and serial exams are also really helpful. Um, what we find initially oftentimes evolves and changes over time. That is awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Summer, from a radiology perspective, what final thoughts do you have to leave with our listeners? So I think when it comes to imaging, radiation is something to think about. And I think in pediatrics in general, people are thoughtful with their use of radiation. Um, so you have to balance the risk benefit of doing a scan. The risk of radiation versus the risk of missing something by not scanning is, should be a significant concern. And I want to echo um, Mike's suggestion that you talk to the radiologist because those um, real-time conversations do add a tremendous amount to both of our assessments. Great. And I think with EMRs, we sort of lost that opportunity or, or it's happening less and less. So as both of you alluded to, this is one opportunity where this will actually help the patient and their outcome. Mike, you get the last word. So it, I think in many ways, I've got the easier job. If somebody is coming and, and I'm called to get involved, they've usually gone through some triage mechanism and it's a more significant injury. I think what's 
what's probably much harder is actually being earlier in the algorithm. So the patient has just gotten there and you've got to sort out um, 50 patients with abdominal pain and a mechanism that may or may not be significant and choose who gets scanned, who needs a trauma consult, who gets alerted. Um, and so I think that's the the harder job. So I appreciate all the people that are involved before I even get involved uh, and keep me out of trouble. Um, and then I would, I think one of the big take-homes for me is really is thoughtful imaging um, and not to just simply, if you're uncomfortable, image from head to toe, because I, I think one, there's almost never anything in the chest. So if you really don't have an indication to do the chest, at least at least stop imaging the, the chest with CT scan. But most of the time, if you if there's reason to believe when you've looked at the patient that there's a, a head injury, abdominal injury, then you know then do it. So just be thoughtful about what you do with the patients. Perfect. Thank you all. Uh, on behalf of Sarah and the entire CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast team, I want to thank you, Aaron, Summer, and Mike, for your expertise. And hopefully we'll have uh, the three of you back on a future topic that uh, meets your uh, expertise. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.